Well, good morning. I'm Ben Henderson, the associate pastor here at Calvary. You know, well, you don't know because I'm about to tell you, but as Clayton and I are kind of thinking and praying through the sermon series that we're in right now in First and Second Corinthians, one of our guiding questions was, what does God do all day? It's a good question to think about. It's profitable. And your answer will reveal a lot about what you really believe about him, right? Does he spend his time watching us, watching for the mistakes that we make? Does he just kind of golf or whatever the heavenly equivalent of that is? Not that golf is bad. (laughs) For Paul and for the New Testament, a primary answer What does God do all day? Is that he makes all things new. His day job, so to speak, is mending and restoring us and the world that we inhabit. But his work is often hard to spot. We cannot always look at our lives or look at situations in people's lives that we know or look at things that are happening in the world We can't just look at them and always identify exactly what it is that the Lord is doing. The Bible never puts it quite like this, but over and over again, in many different stories and many different scriptures, advise us not to judge a book by its cover. There's usually a lot more going on than we can easily see. We all experience a gap between the promises of God that we read in Scripture and our actual lives, the things that actually happen to us and the things that we face. Our hearts are drawn towards worldly evidence of power and significance and success, health and wealth and constant happiness. We want things a certain way, but reality usually does not match our desires. We expect things out of God that he doesn't give us, Often our expectations of God are wrong, but equally as often, he is working, he is providing, just in a way that we're not prepared to see. And so one way to take the point of our passage, I think, is this. Don't judge your life or other people's lives by their cover, by their appearances. I went hunting for morel mushrooms this morning. Uh, does anybody, has anybody done that or does anybody do that regularly? Well, it's me and Lee, I guess. Well, uh, this was the first time I'd ever done it, so. Uh, the lady who cuts my hair told me that this weekend was supposed to be good for mushroom hunting, and so I, I took her word for it. They're the ones, morel mushrooms are the ones that look like the little wrinkled earlobes on a leg, on a little leg there. I had watched one YouTube video about this, and so I felt very equipped to go out. <laughs> into the woods and, and find these, these little wrinkled ears. And I did find one interesting thing, uh, which I at first thought was some kind of a mushroom, uh, but it turned out to be an old rubber ball, uh, <laughs> which was cracked and sh- faded. And it, I mean, it looked like a mushroom. I felt justified in thinking it was a mushroom. I almost brought it, but I left it there, I guess, for me to find and be surprised next year. 
So as you can imagine, this is my first time. I've never done it before, and I didn't have anybody with me. My search for morel mushrooms was fruitless, literally. Not because there weren't any mushrooms in the woods, right? It's highly more likely that there were. I just wasn't seeing them. My eyes were not trained to find them. And what is true for mushrooms is true for life. God's glory is around us all the time. We're just not always seeing it. And so I want to take a bit of time this morning to talk about looking deeper, watching more closely, glimpsing the glory of God, which fills the world around us as the waters fill the sea. And our single-sentence sermon summary, if you're a note-taker, this is for you, really it's for all of you, but our single-sentence sermon summary is, the glory of Jesus is glimpsed through our confident access to God and our freedom to extend grace. The glory of Jesus is glimpsed through our confident access to God and our freedom to extend grace. Now, the Corinthian church, this is who Paul's writing this letter to, the Corinthian church, you know, flawed, failing people, similar to us, they had a lot of the same issues that we have, although maybe about slightly different things. And part of why Paul's writing this letter to them is because they're also having an issue with, with seeing God's glory. And for them, the specific issue was whether or not Paul himself was a real or a qualified apostle, a firsthand witness to Jesus. And they were doubting Paul because his life was not nearly as put together as some of the other Christian teachers that were running around at the time, but who evidently didn't write any of any good books because Paul made it in the New Testament and they didn't. At, at different points in 2 Corinthians, Paul mocks these people and calls them super apostles. And I think we're supposed to kind of imagine, well, Paul wouldn't have imagined this, but I think we can imagine a kind of shiny televangelist sort of character who drives a fancy car and has an answer for every question. So we have that person on one side. Now think about Paul, balding, poor eyesight, not a very good speaker, showing up to church bruised and with torn clothing because the local religious folk just tried to beat him to death. We would obviously put one of those people on TV and not the other one. Paul exposes how the Corinthians' misgivings reveal a deeper misunderstanding and mishandling of the good news. He uses an example from Israel's history, from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, to make his point. Forget about these super apostles, Paul says. Let's, let's reach back all the way to Moses, the premier servant of God, the super, super apostle, so to speak, and talk about how the new covenant is greater even than him. The condensed form of Paul's point is this. If the gospel of a bruised and beaten Messiah is greater than the law of Moses, which was given in thunder and lightning and bright lights and surround sound, then a bruised and beaten messenger stands closer to Jesus than a clean, shiny one. And this is a complicated passage. We're going to tackle it, I think, by looking at a few key words, five of them. We won't spend the same amount of time on all of them, so, you know, but we'll talk about covenant, we'll talk about glory, I want to talk about the veil, what Paul means by bold or confident, and freedom. 
So, covenant. It's a word we hear at church, and really I don't think nowhere else in our lives do we hear this word covenant. A covenant is a contractual agreement. So it is something we're familiar with, we just don't necessarily call it that anymore. A partnership between one, or excuse me, between one, between two or more parties that bind themselves to each other in order to accomplish something in the world, like being married or trading peaceably between tribes or building a tower or something like that. Two or more parties, two or more people come together to do something uh, together. And so a covenant is a basis for relationship, right? It's a me and it's a you in covenant together with one another. And it's also a charter for accomplishing something new. It's me and it's you doing something together. Between God and humans, the covenants have always been about furthering God's purposes of new creation and new life and rescue in the world. Both the the old and the new covenants, this is the same for them both, both of them had the same ultimate goal, that all nations would come to be part of the one people of God and would live with him forever. So that's covenant, and that's the idea of a covenant. How about glory? Glory is another word that we hear a lot in church, and we maybe use it occasionally in connection to, I don't even know, certainly not my mushroom hunt, that was not glorious, but a sports victory maybe or something like that. Paul says that the old covenant was given in immense glory. This glory, if you're familiar with the story, you think back. God rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? He, he parts the Red Sea, and they walk across the, the surface of the ocean floor. They get up on the other side. What happens next is that God comes down to them on Mount Sinai in great fire and noise and thunder and all these different things, and he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses the covenant between he and the nation of Israel. God showed Israel his greatness, his beauty, the majestic splendor of who he is. Of course they were afraid. The experience of God's glory is an encounter of his greatness and a realization of how puny you are in comparison. It is to see that he possesses in gigantic abundance all the good of which you lack. In the blazing brightness of his righteousness, you see your guilt. In his power, your weakness. In his wisdom, your folly. In his honor, your shame. And you realize that he is the source and goal of all the universe and that you are a mist vanishing before the rising of the sun. O Lord, who can stay in your tent. Who shall dwell on your holy hill, the psalmist asks. And the old covenant answers, only one man, the high priest, and him only once a year. And if the high priest is defiled, he will die before the Lord. For the word of the old covenant is that this living, holy God has come to dwell with his people, but his glory is fatally dangerous to anything that is not made like him. A sinful person approaching him would be like tossing a ball of tissue paper into the sun. God's glorious holiness destroys all things made frail by sin and death. 
And that's actually good news because we want God to be in the business of destroying sin and death. It just so happens that unfortunately we are corrupted by sin and death. But hold on, the good news is coming. The old covenant was given in glory, but what a frightening and dangerous glory. And it was also temporary. The old covenant was never intended to be permanent. Built right into it is the expectation of one to come, a king who wouldn't just teach the people righteousness, but would make them righteous. And if the Israelites broke the covenant, God would leave. He would leave the temple. He wouldn't abandon them, but he would remove his special presence with them, which is eventually what happened. But the good news of the glory of the good covenant, or the new covenant, excuse me, is that God has made his glory like us. He has come to live with us permanently in Jesus. Nobody's face ever melted because they looked at Jesus for too long. No sinner was ever killed because they approached Jesus in the wrong way. Jesus is a human like us who slept, enjoyed good food, faced pain and disappointment. But he is also unlike us because through his perfectly obedient life, his death on our behalf, and his rising again, he has made a way for us to not just behold the glory of God, but to share in the glory of God. God became all that we are so that all that we are besides our sin would become like he is. As Paul says in verse 9 here, for if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The glory of the old covenant is that God is far greater than us. The glory of the new is that Jesus is changing us so that we can share in God's great glory. When we look at God and see our lack, Jesus provides exactly what we need. I quote a 19th century preacher named Thomas Guthrie, Am I wounded? Jesus is a balm. Am I sick? He is medicine. Am I naked? He is clothing. Am I poor? He is wealth. Am I hungry? He is the bread of life. Am I thirsty? He is living water. Am I in darkness? He is the sun. Have I a house to build? He is the rock. Must I face that gathering storm? He is an anchor, sure and steadfast. Am I to be tried? He is my advocate. Have I already been tried and been found condemned? He is my pardon. We've dealt with covenant. We looked at glory. Let's move on to the veil. Ancient Israel, back in Exodus, knew immediately that they could not stand in the presence of this glorious God. Moses could, and they were glad to let him, but every time that Moses spent some time up on the mountain, the rest of the people would fall into idolatry and rebellion. Moses put the veil on, not because God asked him to. You can go read Exodus 34 if you want to read the story yourself. God didn't tell Moses to put the veil on. The Israelites asked him to put the veil on because they could not bear to see the radiance of God's glory. That right there is the tragedy of mankind in a few verses. Paul says that their minds and hearts were hardened. This hardening is an effect of sin and is not unique to ancient Israel. 
In their covenant dealings with the Lord, Israel represents all humanity. When it came to it, they did not want what God was giving them in the way that he was giving it. Sin prevented them from looking deeply, from beholding. In Jesus' life, we see that nearly everyone around him who was not an angel or a demon was constantly confused about who and what he is. They couldn't really see him. How often do we miss the glory of God in Jesus? Because we don't recognize him when he comes to us in hardship and trial and pain. While God's glory is present throughout the universe, it is veiled from us by sin. The mushrooms are there, to go back to my story. We just don't see them. And how do you begin to glimpse the mushrooms? Well, someone has to point them out for you. Now, this is where the mushroom metaphor breaks down because, and you should know this in case any of you ever go, do, go try and hunt mushrooms, the first rule of mushroom hunting is that you don't talk about where you hunt the mushrooms. <laughs> so it doesn't quite work all the way. But we are invited and called and responsible for beholding God's glory ourselves and telling other people about it. There aren't enough mushrooms to go around. There is plenty of God's glory to go around. Our fourth keyword there is in verse 12. Bold, Paul says. Because we have such hope, we can be very bold or confident. I think I kind of like confident better. Because of the hope that we have. We have confident access to the presence of God through Jesus. No veils, no danger. Now, some of us gathered this morning may not know the Lord, and you've never given your allegiance to Jesus. And if that's true for you, I'm glad that you're here, and I want you to know that today is a great day to turn to the Lord Jesus in faith. Don't wait until you're good enough or have learned enough. The old covenant was right. You'll never be good enough. But there's a new covenant, too. And the glorious good news is that Jesus was good enough for you and for us all. For some of us who do know the Lord, you've been hiding from him or feel like he's been hiding from you. Perhaps you've done or are doing something for which you're ashamed and you know that he is not pleased. Perhaps you were asking him for something that he has not given Perhaps you've been asking him for years to do something that he has not done. Perhaps you've been doing everything right, and it still feels like God is far from you. Brothers and sisters, if you're in that place this morning, the Holy Spirit's word to you is, look at Jesus in confidence with an unveiled face. As Paul says in another place, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Constant, confident, hopeful prayer is fundamental to glimpsing what God is doing in and around you, especially in times of disappointment. Part of the problem with my mushroom hunt this morning was that I was only at it for about 25 minutes, and I was lashed by thorns because there's a lot of thorns. <clears throat> Mushroom hunting, according to YouTube, takes time 
and patience, persistence and focus to spot those little wrinkled ears in the leaves. But my hunt was characterized by impatience and distraction. I'm not telling you it's easy to pray confidently. It's not. It's not. God knows how frail we are. He remembers that we are dust. And church, he knows the different things that we're going through. Jesus knew better than any of us how hard it is. But he tells us to keep knocking, to keep asking, to keep seeking, not because God enjoys withholding from us, but because we only learn to glimpse his glory and his work through being confident and persistent in the hunt. Now, we've not only been given confident access, we've also been given freedom, which is our fifth and final key word here. Paul says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have freedom. There's a whole lot that could be said about this. I'm going to focus on one particular color in the spectrum of God's freedom for us. We have the freedom to extend grace to others. Our lives are meant to give glory to God. Now God already has all the glory. All the glory is already out there. We don't create more for him when we do certain things, right? We receive it and we witness to it. And that's what the Bible means when it says to give glory to God. We share in it, are transformed in it, and we tell others about it. We don't have to be right all the time because Jesus is. We don't have to run everything because Jesus does. We, like Paul, don't always need to look good because Jesus is beautiful and is making us beautiful. The glory of Jesus, or one of the glories of Jesus, is that he disrupts the normal flow of cause and effect. Usually, when they nail you to a cross, you die, and then you stay dead. But not with Jesus. Usually, when you come before this holy and glorious God and your sins, you die. But not with Jesus. Usually, when someone slaps you in the face, you get to slap them right back. But not with Jesus. Jesus disrupts the flow of cause and effect. This means, church, that we also are free in the Spirit to disrupt the normal flow of cause and effect. If someone does wrong to you, you don't have to repay them evil for evil. You are free to extend them grace instead. This is how we show God's glory to people who don't know him or don't know what it is when they're looking at it. The world is confusing and frightening. People are used to others responding to their sin with more sin. That's just what we expect to have happen. But when we act like Jesus, we disrupt the cause and effect. We show someone a bit of God's glory. Not perfectly. And Paul knows this, right? At the end there, he says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's a process. But my encouragement this week is to ask ourselves, in our interactions with others, how can I act a little bit like God and show a glimpse of his glory? 
when you go out to eat, perhaps later today. Think prayerfully about your practice of tipping. Does the amount you tip have more to do with your waiter or waitress's performance or God's grace and generosity poured out on you in Jesus? Now, the usual objection is true. Bad service gets a bad tip. We don't want to reward wrong behavior. And you're right. Normally, that is really true. We don't. But praise be to God that he does not act like that towards us in Jesus, or we would all be toast, friends. <laughs> Jesus is the only waiter who ever deserved a tip. We have a real opportunity to display the glory of God in Jesus through how we tip. Now, you have the freedom and the spirit to do it differently, and I'm not going to lay down a law that quenches that freedom, and I'm not. So, you know, you don't have to do this. You really are free. But it is something to think about. Does my reaction, whether that be a tip, a post online, a conversation, an interruption, does my reaction reflect the other person's behavior or God's grace shown to us in Jesus? God is at work all around us, and his glory is glimpsed through our confident access to him and by others excuse me, by us through our confident access to him and by others through our freedom to extend grace. It's true God's glory does not often shine through now in the way it did for Moses, bright lights and sound effects and whatnot. But Paul tells us it comes in a better way, a way that transforms and does not destroy, a way that welcomes and does not exclude. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the glory of God made human so that what is human, meals, arguments, conversations, classes, parties, projects, greeting the neighbors, can become glorious. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May it be so for us. Amen.